Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. Today I have the pleasure of introducing today's episode with Navy Commander Mike Lane. We're going to be having a look at international law and the law of the sea, but specifically from a Navy and military perspective. In my planning for this episode, a goal was to provide a perspective from inside the Navy, one familiar with the ins and outs, the day-to-day, and who could offer not only a perspective on the Navy and international law, but also directly an insight into how it is taught about, thought about, and dealt with from within the Navy. It's an honor to introduce today's guest, who is here on personal capacity. Commander Mike Lane has been a lawyer for within the Navy for the past 17 years. He is also currently a professor at the U.S. Navy War College within the Stockton Center for International Law. He entered the Navy right after law school, and in these 17 years in the Navy, he has been stationed in Djibouti, Washington, D.C., Bahrain, and Stuttgart, amongst others, acting as advisor to relevant commanders and part of the combined command and joint operations. Without further ado, let's get started on today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I'm honored to be here today with Commander Mike Lane. How are you? Hey, Brom. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's wonderful to be able to talk to you and, and discuss the Navy and international law. Maybe to start with, could you tell us a little bit more about maybe yourself and briefly where your journey with international law started? Yeah, um, you know, I'm originally from uh, the States, of course, from, from Tennessee, and um, I came into uh, the Navy uh, really shortly after, uh, you know, I, I completed law school and, um, you know, from, from once you get into the Navy, you, or at least this is the way it was when, when I came in, you, you had some freedom as to what direction, you know, you'd want to go and, you know, what kind of career path within the Navy, um, general Corps. And so, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do a lot. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing a lot of things. Um, you know, I've done some criminal defense and courts martial, and um, I've also been uh, a staff judge advocate, which is basically um, an in-house counsel to a military command, I guess mm-hmm. is uh, the, the best way to put it. And I, I really probably only started doing international law probably from, from mid-career on. You know, I was out in um, the Navy's Fifth Fleet uh, area for, for a little while, and then uh, most recently, I was out in in Europe at one of our combatant commands, U.S. European. So that's that's probably been uh, where I've had the most exposure to international law. Great. I think that that leads immediately into my next question. More of a, this general idea of how international law is is very broadly taught about and thought about within the Navy. I think uh, you're also currently a professor at the the Stockton Center. That's right. Yeah, um, I got here in. Uh, really in August. Yeah. So I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about how international law is taught or where where does the education start or where does the thinking start or the knowledge really begin? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, there's, there's not just one international law class that everybody in the Navy um, sits through. It's, 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 it's not at all like that. It's a little bit more um, specialized based on you know, what your job is in the Navy and, you know, what, what place you're going to. So, but that having been said, um, all our commanding officers go through a legal training and that'll include some, um, 
some substantive aspects of, of, of the international law that, that's going to be relevant to them. And then judge advocates like me, you know, we, we're supposed to be the subject matter experts uh, when it comes to international law. So we get, I would say the typical judge advocate gets, you know, probably half a dozen or a dozen different types of training in international law and, and, and refresher training, um, depending on, on where they're going to go. And, you know, also to the extent that um, international law include international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict, as we typically refer to it, all members of the military get that at some point, and then will usually get that again um, before they uh, go on a deployment. And so it's, um, again, there's not just one international law training that everybody gets. It tends to be a lot more focused based on who you are, what your job is, and, and where you're headed. But um, probably the foundation of, you know, international law in the Navy is, is, is in our Navy regulations. And there's, um, you know, there's a passage in, you know, Section 705 of our Navy regulations, which says that, you know, we we shall observe international law. And, and, you know, even to the extent that, you know, there's another section in the Navy regulations that in a particular circumstance would, would be a problem under international law. We have the authority to, um, we have relief from that provision in order to comply with international law. So I would say that, that, that Navy regulations is, is the basis for, um, you know, for how we think about international law. If the Navy regulations are the reason why international law maybe is applicable to everyone at the start, does everyone also interact with it? You've mentioned, of course, that commanders get more specified training. Is there this moment that everyone has to deal with it? Or as you mentioned, this is really international law used for specific individuals. Because if, as you mentioned, if something were to maybe counter international law, you wouldn't have to do it. But how would you be able to know if you weren't informed? Where, where does that happen, let's say? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it's woven into all of our, you know, um, all of our trainings for, you know, the various jobs on a ship or with aircraft. It's infused, I think, all along the way, you know, so if you are, uh, you know, a navigator on a ship, then you're going to be familiar with what the territorial sea is and the contiguous zone and the, the exclusive economic zone and what transit passage is and all that stuff. And that's going to be part of your you know, your standard pipeline training, even though it won't come in a separate international law course, you know, it will be made clear for these reasons grounded in international law. Here's why we um, operate this way in this area. And here's why we do it a little bit differently in this area. I think that approach is really nice because I feel like sometimes an, uh, an academic textbook might feel almost a bit detached or a bit, you might question why why certain rules exist or why certain rules are there. And I guess if you're if you're learning about them as they're being applied, I feel like that's a much more might gives more logic sometimes to to some of the rules. Yeah, I I think it's it is just you know kind of infused with 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 what the person does in the occupational training and then the continual training they get after that. It's you know every bit as important as the technical aspects of the job. When we look at what kind of rules are taught or are becoming applicable, can you maybe tell us a bit more about which sections of international law or which treaties or which areas we think would be most applicable to the Navy and, and maybe the Navy's day-to-day -day activities? It's obvious is the law of the sea convention. Um, you know, as you know, that the, the United States is, is not a party to it. We, we can talk about that for a while mm -hmm. and then why that's not the case, but we do recognize the, um, 
the navigation and the overflight provisions is, is reflecting customary international law. And so, you know, in practice, for everything except the deep seabed mining provisions and, you know, maybe some of the provisions on dispute resolution, you know, un UNCLOS guides us, you know, we, we recognize mm -hmm. that it's customary international law. So, so I would say that was probably the, the one that, that, that everybody's familiar with. And, and, and to go back a little bit further, actually, you know, I, I work here at the Naval War College and one of the first two classes to be taught here at the Naval War College back in the, the late 1800s was international law, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. it's still the foundation of what the Stockton Center here, um, which is part of the War College does, but it's very much in our DNA here. I think, yeah, I think you touched immediately on an interesting point of the fact that that UNCLOS is so important, but the U.S. hasn't, hasn't ratified it. Um, from within the Navy, would you be able to maybe explain why it hasn't been ratified or what elements and thus does it all disrupt the way that it's interpreted or used? Or is this something that's, that's okay because everything is customary law? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it, it, it's, it, it's really that disruptive. I, I think there's an argument now um, from a lot of people um, that you know the the U.S. abides by UNCLOS. I think, it, it, and it's just our way of doing business, such that you know the the benefits we would get from from ratifying UNCLOS now are are, are mainly reputational. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that we would get much more um, you know through through actual ratification than than we have right now. But um, you know, as to why we we didn't ratify it, I think it's a political question. You know, there's there's a high hurdle um, under U.S. law to um, to get into a treaty. It requires mm -hmm. the um, two thirds of the Senate to give their advice and consent prior to ratification. And I think for you know for the last gosh going on forty years, or at least since you know 1994, most of the Senate I think during that period of time you know has uh, has been supportive of of ratifying UNCLOS or, or giving its advice and consent to ratify UNCLOS, but we just haven't been able to reach that hurdle. And, you know, one of the initial objections was, um, I think, concerns about, you know, here, here again, deep seabed mining and, and, and some of the dispute resolution mechanisms. But, you know, maybe there was a concern that, you know, the U.S. would be giving up too much of in the way of sovereignty up and, and, and um, that probably contributed to the hesitancy. But, I would say that within the Department of Defense, I, I'm not aware of, you know, a, a, a nominee for Secretary of Defense who um, has not spoken in favor of UNCLOS. Um, mm -hmm. And I think all of our chiefs of naval operations going back to the 1980s have been um, very vocal, you know, in, in, yeah. in their support. So, so I think there's widespread support for the Law of the Sea Convention, but we just haven't gotten to the point where we, we can get that. Yeah. two-thirds threshold that that we need but you know here again i i don't know at this point that that it matters all that much um in in in, in how we do business it would be nice for it to be ratified um you know i think it would give us a, a seat at the table and in, in, in a lot of these important discussions that are happening i think the you mentioned briefly already how it's almost been four decades that unclos has been around what sections of UNCLOS has really seeped into daily life or daily activities of the Navy. When we just go through it, what sections do you think are most applicable or, or do you deal with the most? Transit passage, you know, might be the biggest one. Um, activities in the exclusive economic zone, 
archipelagic ceilings, passage, um, you know, even innocent passage in, 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 in the territorial sea. Um, you know, these all go to, you know, where our Navy can operate and, you know, secure, um, you know, free and open navigation and, you know, ensure commerce. So, mm -hmm. so I would say those are probably the big ones. You know, flag state uh, jurisdiction comes up, you know, if you, if you ever wanted to board a ship, that's usually a key driver. You know, do you have some sort of reciprocal agreement with uh, the flag state of the vessel? Are you, do you ever then, do you have specific agreements with states that have a lot of flagships or a lot of flag states because I think I don't I don't remember the stat at the top of my head but I remember that Panama and and and, and countries such as Panama have something like 70 percent of all ships are, are fly their flag <laughs> yeah um, you know I think they're a party to some you know various um uh, agreements but do we have bilateral agreements with them you know I'm not sure you know, there's the Proliferation Security Initiative, which is actually more of a political commitment, you know, as, as, as you may know, and, and, and not necessarily, um, you know, uh, a treaty with, you know, formal rights mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But I don't know. It's a great question. I suspect there's probably some agreements with Panama and Liberia and mm -hmm. you know, some of those other, you know, flag of convenience states that we'd like to have that we don't. But, um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not sure. If we drift away a little bit from, from UNCLOS, you had mentioned that the law of armed conflict was also applicable in an international humanitarian law. Is that something that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis or just in general? I think usually when I, when I was learning, let's say, about international law, when we ever talked about the Navy or the Army or the military, international humanitarian law is just always the one you jump at. It's always the one yeah. that seems to be referenced. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that and how you felt like the Navy interacted with international humanitarian law. Well, I guess a notable example from the recent past would be the trial of one or maybe more uh, Navy uh, special warfare, Navy SEALs for, um, you know, alleged crimes in Afghanistan. Those um, Can you maybe tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, you know, there was... Um, uh, the, the, there were examples of allegations of Navy SEALs using maybe uh, 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 combatants who were out of combat, or um, I think that was the issue. Mm -hmm. and, and those were investigated, and you know there was a trial, and it, it got all sorts of publicity. And uh, eventually, in, in, in the most recent one I'm thinking of, it, it, it did not result in a conviction, but you could lay that alongside uh, a, a number of other instances where, you know, the U.S. has tried people under the law of con armed conflict and convicted the people, I guess, you know, Staff Sergeant Bales in Afghanistan, there was another Staff Sergeant Gibbs, I believe, um, mm -hmm. who were um, found guilty of unlawfully um, uh, targeting civilians and I think one of those people pleaded guilty in order to avoid possibly receiving the death penalty and receive life in prison. And I think the other person mm -hmm. received life in prison. So, you know, I think the Army and the Marine Corps, particularly with the Marine Corps, that that investigation, that incident, and the Army with Abu Ghraib, um, mm -hmm. you know, gosh, we're going back about 18 years now for that. Um, but uh, those services are probably a little bit deeper into the law of armed conflict and and into accountability actions resulting from that. I think just based on what we do and where our conflicts have been in the last 20, 20 years, the the Navy hasn't been as involved, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but but it is from time to time. Yeah. Then I think the last 
area of international law that might be applicable are bilateral treaties and agreements uh, between the U.S. and other states? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great one. And, and we have dozens of these and, and maybe even hundreds of them. You know, mm -hmm. we have, uh, um, you know, status of forces agreements that basically establish the legal status of, of, of our military personnel whenever they're in a foreign country. And um, we, we negotiate these often on a country to country basis, you know, within the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, we have a NATO SOFA that, that most everyone signs up to. And then we also have um, NATO supplemental status of forces agreements, sometimes mm -hmm. with individual countries, which go into a little bit more de uh, detail. So gosh, those, um, those run the spectrum from not having them at all to having very detailed agreements. Um, you know, we have agreements with countries all over the world when it comes to what we call ABO, um, access, basing, and overflight. You know, uh, mm -hmm. a country, you know, as, as we know, is sovereign within its borders. So if, if, if we're going to operate at all there, it's, it's at the pleasure of the host country. And so access, basing, and overflight agreements with the countries who think those are a good idea. So, so, so those are the ones that come to mind right away, I guess. Do you think that if we look at the international law we just discussed, that the Navy in and of itself has an active role in the creation and interpretation of international law in the way that it is used potentially or understood? Yeah, you know, the um, probably the biggest way or arguably the biggest way that, that we do that is with the, um, the freedom of navigation uh, program that we have. And it's about 50 years old now, but you know, the idea with the Law of the Sea Convention is that it was this, this grand bargain, this trade-off in which states got an extended territorial sea and an exclusive economic zone. In exchange for getting that, you know, the, the idea was, well, the rest, everything else will be in the territorial sea, you know, beyond 12 nautical miles will, will generally be, um, you know, open to free navigation, you know, to, to, to the global community. To, to all nations. And so, you know, that was the initial bargain. But, you know, over time, what we see is that, um, you know, a lot of the benefits of UNCLOS for free navigation and, and that sort of thing, they're um, sometimes they're not as great as the perceived benefits from domestic constituencies, you know. So, so there's a lot of pressure, I think, on coastal states to try to expand their regulatory reach out mm -hmm. further and further away from their shores. It's it's a natural tendency. And, um, and while that's completely understandable, over time, it comes at the expense of the international community and it comes at the expense of commerce and interchange among peoples and stuff like that. And so what the, um, the Freedom of Navigation program does is it, it tries to push back on some of those excessive claims, mm -hmm. what, what we feel are excessive claims, in a way that prevents them from becoming customary international law. And it's not, um, it's not always a popular thing to do, um, but I would say that's probably our biggest contrib contribution are the Freedom of Navigation Act um, assertions that, that we do to try to push back on some of these. Is that a physical assertion or how does that work? Yeah, yeah so we wouldn't typically go into the territorial sea unless it were some um, condition on, on innocent passage. Yeah. Um, you know, say some states will require um, prior notice you know, exercising um, innocent passage or deny innocent passage based on, you know, means of propulsion, which is, you know, beyond what 
you know, customary international mm-hmm. law to see would allow. And so that, that would usually be the, um, the only circumstance in which we'd go into the territorial sea, but, yeah. um, but yes, it, it, it does involve, you know, sovereign immune vessels, you know, often warships, you know, kind of making those assertions and, and, and you can, you know, anyone can Google where the U.S. did their assertions. Just type in um, Freedom of Navigation Act. There's a, an annual report that the Department of Defense makes to Congress, and there's usually, um, you know, between 20 and 30 assertions listed. And, and, and it's often the case that, or at least it's occasionally the case, that a state may not know that the U.S. has done an assertion until it comes out in that report. Mm-hmm. We make assertions against um, what we feel are China's ex- excessive claims, and, and, and yeah. they definitely know we're there, and, and those are pretty tense. But we try to be even-handed, and we do assertions even against countries that we are on very good terms with, yeah. um, you know, our, our, our allies and partners. And, um, you know, from, from experience, a lot of people don't want to do these. You know, they're, they're awkward. They sometimes yeah. come at the expense of our relationship, you know, with that coastal state, you know, they're, they're not thrilled about it. They like their claim, but it serves the greater good of, you know, keeping excessive claims from, you know, hardening into, into customary yeah. international law. So that's probably the, um, the most obvious way yeah. that, you know, that, that, that we're out there affecting international law. And the South China Sea must be yeah, a great example of, oh, yes. <laughs> of the Navy's involvement as well. That's the one that springs to mind, South China Sea and, and, and the East China Sea as well. And then just as a last point, then the assertions would be then in the exclusive economic zones, if I understand correctly? Yeah, I would say they're, they're most often in the um, exclusive economic zone. You know, some states will, um, will claim, uh, you know, a straight baseline. The baseline is where everything, be, all the maritime boundaries begin. If a state draws a, um, a straight baseline, then... We will be coming through what what we feel is their exclusive economic zone, or at least their contiguous zone. But but the state may view it as their as their territorial sea from their okay. flawed baseline. It must be an odd experience to to go through, especially for for countries like allies and partners. But I guess that shows also the power of of the rules being used. And I should mention to make sure that it doesn't become customary international law. You had mentioned a little bit before. Uh, when we had talked before about qualified neutrality and how the Navy acts within qualified neutrality. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell us what that means. That's a fantastic point. And um, you know, I should say right away, I, I think the Navy's role in that, you know, while it exists, might not be quite as robust as actually the U.S. Army's role um, mm-hmm. right now and, 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 and probably the Air Force as well. But, you know, a lot of the rules, maybe even all the rules, on um, on neutrality are are very old, and they were written at a time when when the world was was much different. And importantly, they were also written, you know, before the UN Charter. And um, you know, as traditionally conceived, you know, the law of neutrality requires strict impartiality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the, the the notion of qualified neutrality has come up after uh, you know the UN Charter. You know, and the idea is, you know, a state could provide help to the victim of an unlawful aggressive action and retain, you know, some, you know, some aspects of neutrality. And I think that the, the United States with support to Ukraine and, and is, is really putting some, um, some state practice on the map when it comes to 
to qualify neutrality. So that's a timely one. You're absolutely right about that. You know, under um, early 1900s conception of neutrality, providing arms to, you know, a state in an international armed conflict was clearly not consistent with with neutrality. But we take a different view now with, with qualified neutrality and certainly not alone in that. You had previously mentioned some of the cases that have come up within the Navy of breaches of international law, looking at the laws of armed conflict. But for me, as, as an outsider, of course, and having heard of military courts or, or Navy courts, they feel kind of foreign. It's, it's a little bit hard for me to understand. And it sometimes seems like they're, for probably for good reason, maybe a bit hidden from, from public view. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about what happens within the Navy internally when there is maybe an alleged breach of international law? What are the steps that are taken? Who is involved? Yeah, kind of how does that process work? Well, I would say it's going to be different depending on on the severity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if it's just, say, a navigation error and maybe in which, you know, somebody... um, you know, drives a ship into uh, a territorial sea and no one knows. I, I don't know how often that happens, probably mm-hmm. probably not much, but, um, you know, there would be accountability on on some level, you know, provided there was no, you know, injury or, or, or loss of life or property damage. But, you know, there, there may not be a court-martial. But if you're talking about a law of war violation, you know, international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict violation, then first of all, there, there's a duty to report on the part of anybody in the U.S. military, you know, any known or suspected or, or, or reports of, of law of armed conflict violations. And if, if those reports are credible, then they have to be made all the way up to the combatant commander. And, and those will be investigated usually by one of our, our service, criminal investigative services in the Navy. We hit, In the Marine Corps, we have the Navy uh, Criminal Investigative Service in CIS. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they, they will preserve evidence and interview witnesses and do their role as, as a law enforcement investigator. And then, you know, there will be a, a what we call a, a convening authority who is usually an admiral and he or she will decide, you know, whether the, the evidence warrants a prosecution. And if so, what's the forum? You know, we have a special court martial for mm-hmm. um, which can award up to a year in prison, and then a um, a general court martial, which which is whose jurisdiction you know extends well beyond the year to you know life imprisonment, you know even the uh, the death penalty in some cases. So um, so that decision will be made, and then there will be a um, a basic hearing where the, um, the the prosecutors will will demonstrate that there's enough evidence that that the case should move on to the actual trial, and then there will be a trial, and then at the trial, the accused can either have a um, panel of officers or officers and enlisted members that hear the case, or the accused can elect to have the case heard in front of a judge alone. Depending on the charges, you know, they come with mandatory maximum sentences that spell out, um, you know, time in prison, fines, forfeitures, dismissal or dishonorable discharge from the service. And, you know, a unique aspect uh, that's a little bit different from um, from a lot of jurisdictions within the U.S. is that, you know, in a military court martial, you don't actually all the time need uh, a unanimous uh, decision to convict someone. So that that's in brief how it would play out yeah. in the Navy. And then, you know, the it, it's the same uniform code of military justice. So, you know, within the Army and the Air Force and the Marine Corps and conceivably the Coast Guard. Have there been any notable cases recently that you're familiar with or that you can talk about a bit as just an example of or what can happen when somebody is held accountable 
Yeah, you know, um, I think uh, the Staff Sergeant Bale example is one. I mean, maybe that's, that's, that's probably a few years old now, but he murdered civilians in Afghanistan, was um, referred to a, uh, a court-martial, which means the charges were presented to a court-martial. In order to avoid the possibility of the death penalty, um, he agreed to plead guilty and serve a sentence of life in prison. I think the Staff Sergeant Gibbs case that I mentioned, that actually did go to, uh, to, to a full trial, um, and he was found guilty and given a life. Yeah. That's my memory. But if it's not those two cases, then, then, then those would be, I think, fairly representative of how the process would work. And, and again, you know, to be fair, trials don't always result in, in conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a, um, uh, the, the Navy SEAL case I mentioned did not result in in a conviction. I'm not familiar with, with the facts of that case. Uh, maybe at one time I was, but, you know, maybe that's um, the fact that, you know, a system doesn't convict everyone. Maybe, maybe that's a feature of a good system, you know, and, and, and not a bug, you know, in Nuremberg, I think um, a couple dozen of, you know, the German um, uh, defendants who were put on trial actually were found not guilty, probably a minority of those uh, who, who were tried, but still, you know, I think it just shows that the process is, is, is not a sham process, you know, I think this leads to, to maybe a last discussion point on a bit more of a broader scale. If we look at criminal accountability or criminal justice, let's say, you often think of the ICC. I mean, I'm Dutch. I'm in Amsterdam now, but when we started the podcast, it was in The Hague. So, of course, there's been a lot said, and there's a lot of discussions about how the US does not want to ratify the Rome Statute, or at least it does not want to accede to it, uh, having played a major role in drafting it. I was wondering if you could maybe discuss that on, on why the U.S. might not want to do that, or it's made specific claims or maybe potentially political claims, but how a lot of pushback has been made about perhaps trying uh, U.S. soldiers or U.S. Navy or military officers at the ICC or in The Hague. You know, um, I, I think your expertise is going to far exceed mine though, mm-hmm. on this question, but, um, but you know, my, and, and I don't have any particular insight on, um, on why, uh, you know, the U.S. hasn't, you know, signed on to that and, and, and become a party to it. Although I think it's been a long, it's been an ongoing issue across several U.S., you know, administrations. I think mm-hmm. maybe going back to the President Clinton administration. But, you know, that, that sort of question would be worked out at, at, at the really highest levels of the United States interagency process. I mean, it, it would be something for you know, the, the U.S. Attorney General and the Department of Defense General Counsel and, and, and lots of State Department people to get yeah. together on. But my understanding is that, um, that there were a few concerns. Maybe one was a concern that, that the ICC would, would have jurisdiction over individuals from states uh, who were not parties to, um, to the Rome Statute such that you know the, the individuals could be carrying out their function that they've been told to do by their mm-hmm. state and and that function um might in itself not be you know if, if done under different circumstances would be legal um but uh those people might be held um might be brought in front of the court mm-hmm. when their their state was not a party to to the convention, um, and so that would be a situation where I think people 
uh, feared that it was really the state's policy and not the individual's conduct mm -hmm. that was on trial. And so I think that was one concern. Maybe there was another concern about um, politicized prosecutions and, and mm -hmm. maybe since the U.S. you know tends to be well is a, a big country and and you know sometimes can be energetic in world affairs that the U.S. would have uh, a lot of exposure to some politically motivated charges and then you know maybe there was some concerns about the accountability of the prosecutors that, that, mm -hmm. that maybe you would in an attempt to um, seal prosecutors off from political concerns, you want to give them autonomy. But at the same time, that autonomy can create a situation where the prosecutor would have unlimited discretion to initiate cases. And, mm -hmm. and, and there wasn't that level of a check and balance on a prosecutor. I, I think those were some mm -hmm. of the... Um, some of the concerns that people had, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert and, and I would love to hear yeah. um, your take on that. I, I, I suspect you, you've got a lot of great things to say on it. I think it's difficult. I think that from oftentimes when it's mentioned nowadays, it's seen as almost more of a political statement of a, of a refusal. And there seems to be this narrative that the U.S. would be afraid that that it would find potentially members of the military within the U.S. that might have breached international law and that then were not convicted at home, that maybe were not tried, let's say. And I think that that's why it would be such a, an interesting discussion to have with you is from your perspective, do you think that there is a difference or a standard of quality, let's say, between trials within the military and with outside of the military? Do you think that there is this, this almost, yeah, I think you mentioned that a trial needed to be initiated by somebody who comes forth. Could a trial also be initiated from outside of the military or would it be perhaps better if it was done completely removed from the military context? Yeah, those are good points. And, and, and what comes to mind is um, I think there are people who um, would agree with you in the U.S., who have been really uh, critical of the Department of Defense's efforts mm -hmm. over the years when it comes to sexual assault. Yeah. And, and so there have been some prominent senators on that. And, and there was actually a, um, an overhaul of the military um, criminal justice system, which, which has not gone into effect, will into effect here pretty soon, that, that's going to change the way certain um, cases are tried to, to, to try to in, insulate prosecutors from you know, from from their local commands and put them at a um, at a more senior level where they're only answerable to to a senior official. So I think there there probably are some you know some some thoughtful concerns that people have about that. But it's hard for me to compare it because I don't have yeah. a lot of experience. You know, no, of um, you know on on the other side. But I think it's 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 not an, an obviously flawed system in mm -hmm. in, in, in my um, in my opinion. It's certainly one that that could be improved. You know, I guess one thing that also comes to mind is that if a U.S. military member, most of the time we're talking about crimes that they commit when they're not in the U.S., you know, when they're, mm -hmm. on their, when they're overseas. And generally speaking, when U.S. members are in a foreign country, they're subject to both U.S. law and also the law of, of the foreign state. Mm -hmm. Unless the foreign state has negotiated that away in some sort of set us of forces act, so there would be another jurisdiction out there who you know who could take the case. But um, how do you feel about 
that, you know, based, based on what I think I come with a similar point that I, I find it difficult to say because I don't, I obviously don't know much context from the inside of the military. But, but for me, you know, it's interesting just the fact that, that the ICC has a lot of issues, but some of that also comes because it is limited in the cases that it can pick. Of yeah. course, it can only pick a case if the country is a member state to the Rome Statute, if it has has ratified the Rome Statute. And the fact that in the United States have not done so, um, that makes this job quite difficult. Um, you know, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. I mean, there, there, there is a faction in the U.S. You know, consider the U.S. It's, it's separated by these huge oceans, you know. And so I, I think there is um, a certain feeling that, 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 that some people have in the U.S. that we ought to just focus on, on the U.S. And, and, and let the rest of the world be the rest of the world. And that, that also tends to come along with, uh, I think, maybe a distrust of foreign bodies, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we, even the UN. And so that, that is a feeling that, that, that a lot of people have. I think it's a minority of people, but you get that worldview and you combine it maybe with some, some other concerns that people have in the margins. All of a sudden you have enough to prevent it from becoming yeah. law. So I think we can almost leave our discussion there. If there was, if you had any other points that you'd like to discuss on the Navy's involvement with international law, you know, um, you know, you asked actually, you did ask about um, bilateral treaties. One that I didn't mention mm-hmm. was the, um, you know, we uh, uh, th- there are a lot of these, but the Montreux Convention is one mm-hmm. that comes up, um, you know, a lot for the Navy. And the U- United States is 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 not not a party to that, but you know, that would be one where we certainly recognize that. As a longstanding um, convention that you know Montreux governs who comes into the Turkish Straits and and yeah. who transits the Turkish Straits and who goes into the Black Sea and that you know that Turkey you know it administers it and um, that would be a big bilateral treaty or no multilateral treaty that affects us even though we're actually not a, at all a party yeah. to it you know. Yeah. But, you know, there's all sorts of really interesting Cold War history about Montreux and what the U.S. position on it was and why they thought it it makes sense. Another really interesting issue is um, during the um, negotiations on the Law of the Sea Convention, the United States and the Soviets often found themselves on the same side of of of, of these issues. And I think that's a really important thing to think about because it, there was a lot of cooperation, you know, at the time, you know, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that really exists now, but you know, it, it is maybe a model that, that we could return to. And, and even at the, um, the height of the cold war, or at least during the seventies, you know, when the U S was, was administering the, the, the Panama canal, Soviet ships, you know, transited the Panama canal during you know, very tense times and Soviet ships would, would come right up to U.S. shores. And, and, and we recognize we didn't like it, but we, yeah. we, we recognize their their right to be there. And, you know, there, there were even incidents where, you know, uh, a, a Soviet ship would come into the territorial sea and, and we would come and greet them and, and, and see them on their way and follow diplomatic protests. And, you know, there, there weren't, you know, shots fired or, or, yeah. or, or anything like that. So it's, Really, really interesting history with with the Soviets, you know, during the Cold War, you know, in the context of the Law of the Sea Convention and Montreux. That well, thank you, thank you so Thanks. much for coming. It was yeah. it was a pleasure, an absolute pleasure, and an honor to talk to you. Great to be with you.
Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Auxiliary Chamber. It was an incredible honor to host this week's guest, Commander Mike Lane. Thank you again for all of your time and insight. Stay tuned for more episodes that are currently in the works and hope to be released very soon. Talk to you all soon.